This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome to our six-season winter premiere of Arrival. I hope you had a, a good experience. We just got to see the movie in the Pollock Theater, which was a wonderful experience for us. Uh, before I begin, I want to give a really special thank you to Renee from Paramount Pictures. Uh, I don't know if you people are aware, this week is Oscar voting week for the nominees, and it really means a lot to us that Paramount and Renee put this together and let us be able to share this wonderful event with all of you. So, so a little plug for that. Uh, also, as people know, how many have never been to a script to screen? Just curious. Okay. Uh, well, we examine the screenplay from the perspective of writers, directors, and actors and producers. Please like us on our Facebook page, Script to Screen, UCSB Script to Screen. You'll get reviews and updates on some of our upcoming events. But we're here about Arrival tonight. Arrival is one of the biggest critical and box office success and award success for this, for this year. Uh, it has a 94% Rotten Tomato rating, which is pretty amazing. It had two Golden Globe nominations, one for Amy Adams and one for Original Score. And of course, it had a Writers Guild nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. And our guest tonight, aside from writing Arrival, wrote The Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, Final Destination, sorry, it's five, and the prequel to The Thing. So please welcome the Public Theater stage screenwriter, Eric Hesser. Uh, so to be able to write such a complicated story, you must share Louise's ability to see the future in time. Uh, but you also know that future is unavoidable. So my question for you is, while you were struggling writing you know, different drafts, did you see this Q&A and realize you would be here tonight? <laughs> and did that scare you and realize, well, it's unavoidable? Well, you'll, you'll never guess what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. It's that scary. You know, but I don't know. Uh, all right, so let's get right to it. Linguistics is not ex- uh, the most obvious choice for visual storytelling. Uh, the short story author Ted Chang thought, you know, I read an interview, that it would be difficult originally when he thought you know, this would turn a movie. He's right. <laughs> so what drew you to the story, and then what, what was you know, the, the biggest impetus for you to jump to the... Primarily it was just about how the story made me feel. You know, I got to the end of it, and it was this hat trick where I felt uplifted and just heartbroken at the same time. Uh, and it was, it was a profound experience for me, and I thought, I feel just gutted and tearful and a little joyous at the same time, how can I inflict a wide audience with this? Like, is there a way for me to just to, like, torture uh, viewers with it? Um, and so that was my, my primary goal of, like, I've got to make this into a film. It wasn't until much later that I discovered it's nearly impossible to turn it into a film. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll talk about a little some of the changes from the book. Uh, one of the things I noticed is that the military threat was not as prevalent. Right. The military. So what, what was that? Why was one of the reasons you edited the film? It was kind of that. Did you always know you needed that kind of dramatic kick? Uh, yes. Well, I suspected it. I mean, the short story does so many things right. It's a great literary conceit in its own right, but there's absolutely no conflict uh, in the story. It doesn't really need it. Um, and you do need it for film. So uh, I tried to find a way to like, um, organically build a, a like, dramatic tension and, uh, and give myself a ticking clock. Uh, and in, in the story, um, the heptapods actually don't show up. It's not a first contact, per se. Um, it's over 100 different pieces of uh, technology that just show up around the world. 
uh, that are essentially flat screen TVs and we have Skype calls with the heptapods from like however many light years away. Uh, and that was, you know, academically interesting, no, no tension at all there. Uh, so the first real choice I made was to, to have them show up at our front door. And what does that do geopolitically and, and you know, how do we handle that? Yeah, that was, uh, that was really interesting, especially the, uh, the, uh, the world's reaction to it. Yeah. You know, obviously, Amy was a little more open to it, you know, Louise, and, you know, sure. they were scared like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Russians, you know, and the Chinese specifically were a little more frightened. Well, that was our perception of them. The interesting right. thing is that our ideas of what was going on in China and Russia, it's all through the bias of the American intelligence network. Right. So... Because, you know, the end, General Chang is actually, you know, a good guy. He's a good guy. It was one of the best moments I thought of the movie with him and Louise. When, right. Uh, it's, uh, but obviously the heart of the story is Louise and sure. her story. And having, having the baby, uh, knowing that she's going to die young, knowing the future, how did you approach that character arc? What was the... It's the know? first thing I wrote, you know. And, and I would say that of all the stuff that made it all the way... The first five pages and the last five pages stayed the same almost exactly uh, from the first draft. So um, I, I think it's because that's really what I, what I was most interested in communicating to the audience is like, how does this make you feel? And how is that, you know, it's the, it's the Tennyson quote of it's better to have loved than lost than never to have loved at all. And it's interesting, you said the beginning and end, so the challenge for you is how to get to the end. Yeah. Like all this stuff, but you always knew how you, your last shot almost and your first shot. Yeah. Uh, the scene where Louise meets Colonel Weber, whether it was a great moment, because again, the military is usually the bad guy. Right. And it's like, he's not. And it was interesting, like, he, no. he, he has a job to do, yeah. and he knows she's good. And, but it was interesting how Louise can be abused, misunderstood in a few examples. Louise uses hieroglyphics to get the job from the other guy. What is the Sanskrit? Sanskrit, like, yes. What is, uh, you know, the kangaroo story, uh-huh. which I thought was brilliant. And even it was interesting, I thought the CIA agent saying, uh, when, uh, when Ian goes, you know what, they're just giving us air. To breathe, like maybe they're trying to suffocate us. How did you weave this? Because it's all cultural misunderstandings, you know, into the script. Because how dramatically how each character perceived things differently. Well, I mean, I think it's you, you look to friends and family, and you're going to find people who kind of run the spectrum. You know, there's always going to be one relative who's like, "They're just going to kill us." I'm like, "All right, Uncle Bob, I don't. <laughs> maybe they're not going to kill us." And this is, you know, but there, you know, there's that that filter that everybody sort of approaches this kind of big life-changing moment. Um, and, uh, and it was easier to, like, I guess, differentiate the characters by having it, uh, you know, by having it, everybody with their own, uh, uh, like, personal biases come to the for- forefront. And also, what, whatever their job is, they've got to make sure they're doing their job right. And, you know, I think one of the lines that, Gen- that uh, Colonel Weber says at one point is, like, he, he has to explain to a room full of people whose first and last question is, how can this hurt us? And that's why I really like Colonel Weber, because he, of course, wanted peace. I mean, he, he's not looking yeah. for a fight, and he wants, he believe, and I like the fact that he believes in Ian and Louise. Same time, he's worried. I mean, yeah. it's a legitimate thing. This big ship is there, and they're not exactly talking. There's a scene that we, we actually, we even shot it, but uh, it didn't land in the, in the final film that sort of, uh, um, it, it sort of uh, clarifies Weber's position and the pressure that he's under. Uh, and the reason we had to get rid of it is because it's, it's Louise's story. It really is. The more that you make it uh, a, uh, the POV of Amy Adams, the, the more aerodynamic it, it becomes. But it was uh, Weber and uh, 
Stilbard's character, the uh, the CIA agent, out on the uh, on a perimeter talking to a sergeant there, um, who's guarding the the uh, the barricade to keep the public out, and it is turned into just this like Woodstock. It's turned into a giant con- you know, conglomeration of uh, RVs and trucks and all that. And by you know in the first forty eight hours, it was like full of awe and wonder and like oh I can see the alien ship from here. But after the end of the first week, it's really the, the tenor has changed, and you can hear that shock jock radio DJ on some of the, like, the radios out there, and there's just this sense of, like, at some point in time, they're going to storm the gates. And the sergeant is telling, telling Colonel Weber, I need 200 soldiers. I need 200 men with AR-15s. Get me, get me armed men, and I can make sure that we can contain this. Otherwise, I, don't, I really don't know how long it's going to be before suddenly you've got people in the camp. And... And Colonel Weber is like, think about what you're saying, though. 200 armed soldiers. I'm not only worried what that says to them, I'm worried what that says to them. And that was immediately preceding a scene where Colonel Weber came in and was basically, Louise, give me an answer now. And like, you know, you understood why. <laughs> yeah, like, you know. It was interesting because this first shot, you do see the RVs. Yeah. It's there. It's interesting. It's there. I was always like, I was curious about that. Uh, obviously, uh, Louise is a very challenging character, you know, to play for an actress because, you know, She's hiding the true nature, you know, the story. doesn't know the flash forward. Uh, what was your reaction? I know you and I talked a little backstage. You knew you always wanted Amy Adams. Yeah. What was your reaction when you actually learned Amy Adams agreed? And what did she bring to your, char- uh, your scripted character that surprised you? Um, I was thrilled once I heard that, that she, she signed on. I thought, well, okay, now we have a movie. We're good. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful because she was after a role that was more of a turnkey Thing for her, she was. It was a time in her career where she didn't know if she was going to like jump back into film for a while, and then uh, you know, she thankfully somebody gave the script to her, and and she said, "All right, well, I'll do this movie, and then I'll stop for a while." And then, uh, and of course, she's still going. <laughs> I don't know if that ever is going to happen, but um, but it didn't. I, I want to say that like the script really didn't change with her when she came on board. All but when you have a phenomenal actor that embodies a role for you, you find out just how little dialogue and places mm-hmm. you actually need. And there's plenty of times when you just go to a shot of her and you're like, well, that, there it is. Well, I mean, if we talk a little about the opening scene, uh, which is actually in our program, uh, is she doesn't say a word and you know what she's feeling. Yeah. And, you know, so, is that, so that must be a relief for you as a screenwriter, knowing I don't have to always feed them dialogue. She, exactly. she gets the, uh, yeah. the thing. I also found it was the most science-driven meet-cutes in movie history. <laughs> uh, the argument between you know, language versus science. You sat with so dynamic, which was brilliant right off the bat, and also the main thing about the construction of civilization. How did you approach that scene? Because that was a pivotal moment for them. Sure. What was that for you? Did you always land on that? I was, I was excited about that. I was excited about... Um, having two academics argue with each other. My, my father was an ancient history professor at OU for 30 years, and so as a kid, I would always be around him and his peers and the way that they kind of bickered at each other and, you know, and, uh, and, and the ones who did it affectionately and, and then the ones who obviously held grudges. And, and so I, I was excited about that, that, that make me cute. There was a little bit more to it uh, in the script for a while where... He, where Ian says, you know, even if it's wrong, you know, it's language isn't the foundation of civilization. It's it's uh, science. His his follow up is, you don't need to know the word for fire. You just need to get burned by it. <laughs> and uh, 
And Dadeem was like, Eric, I think that is, Eric, I think it's a little too far. It's a little too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, now, Meeting the Aliens was a very challenging part of turning the script to the screen. Like you said, you mentioned, you know, it was a Skype turned into real life. Yeah. What was the collaboration working with the director on this? Phenomenal. Yeah, how that, how that process go? Uh, it, was, it was absolutely delightful, uh, but it was unlike anything I'd had before. You know, so very often uh, in my position as screenwriter, once you're aware of a director coming on board, it's something that the studio informs you, like, well, we got a director, he's going to meet with you. And that feels more like sort of a hostage trade off on a bridge at night, you know, <laughs> where it's like, so it's a nice child you got there, Eric. I'm going to take him away now. <laughs> and maybe I'll remember your name in the premiere. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing, and that's it. Um, and then I heard that Denis was very interested in this project. Uh, he had read the short story some time ago, didn't know how it could be a movie, and then he read the script, he was very engaged by it, he went to sit down with me, and all the other producers were like, don't, you know, <laughs> do not go in. And so I sat down with him at a coffee shop, and we talked for like over an hour for all, about all things of philosophy and science and, you know, infinity and religion and, uh, and the script a little bit. And at the end of all that, he was like, very nice, Eric, let's do this again next week. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh, okay, sure, all right. And we did that for, for two months. We did like six or seven of them. It, it would be great. It would be like a little podcast, really, with the two of us, just talking about all these things. And after every meeting, you know, I'd get the call from the breathless producers. Is he on? And like, no, but we had a great croissant and, you know, <laughs> a little uh, cappuccino. And we talked about it. It's like, I don't understand. I'm like, I don't either, but it's great. And it, and it, didn't, it didn't really click with me until after all of that, he finally signed on officially. And then he called me directly right after, and he says, okay, Eric, now we are married. <laughs> and I get it. Like, I understood. Like, oh, it was a courtship. And, and he meant it. Like, he was the only director I've worked with where before, uh, before any sort of change uh, to the script, he would call and say, now, Eric, if I move this, if I adjust this, does this break anything? Because uh, other directors are like, you know, that's it. You know, they don't, that's just how they go. And you can still come out with a great film with sure. all of that. It's just not necessarily one that you had the, the, the roadmap for at the start. Yeah, the reality is you could have had a whole setup reason you needed that shot and sure. it just dis, dis, disappear. Yeah. Uh, I, saw, I saw an interview with Amy Adams talking about it was the best set she's ever been on. A, mm -hmm. were you on set? And yes. what was the experience like? Why was it so good? What was so special about him as a director that made that set special? Well, I think it's because Montreal, and you know, he's French-Canadian, so everybody loves him there. Uh, so it's a little bit like playing at the, you know, the home base, home team. Um, and the Montreal crew is very picky. They're all aspirational. Um, even down to like the gaffers and the grips will read the script before signing on to something, which is different from like just about anywhere else. And, uh, and we found out that uh, Brian Singer hated us because they chose our film over the X-Men movie, like whatever he was filming at the same time. We got, a, we got the crew that was uh, really excited about, uh, about Arrival. So it was just a really smooth production. Everyone there just poured their hearts into it and we're all trying to make the same movie. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was just a great time. There was very little for me to do. Just enjoy the, uh, the show. On the yeah. set. Uh, now, this leads to teaching the aliens English sequence. Uh, since it is visual language more than verbal language, how do you crash visual cues in the screenplay? Final draft screenwriting software I know doesn't do that. So what did you, you do? You know the story, yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Um, yeah. This is not my heptapod knowledge. This is the fact that I've had to answer this question before. So, um, yeah. 
Uh, okay. The, the, the heptapalp language was a unique problem for me as a screenwriter because when I got to talking about it, I knew how important it was in the film, uh, and I got more and more novelistic in my description of it whenever I got to that in the script. And if there's one thing I hate, mm. it's a screenwriter trying to be a novelist. I mean, it just aggravates me to no end. Walter Hill is my idol in terms of how terse you can be, how poetic you can be, and, and still get across, you know, be very visually evocative. And so I, I got very frustrated, and I was out to dinner with my wife one night, complaining, as usual, about whatever it was I was working on. And I'm like, I don't know how to make this work without just spending way too much time on the page. And she's like, well, just draw, show me what you're talking about. And I scribbled something out that was a circular kind of cuneiform that had a few little branching things. And I said, roughly this. And she says, well, then just put that in the script instead. And I'm like, you can't put a, wait, can you put a graphic in, <laughs> in the script? And you're right, you can't. Like I found out, like Final Draft is like, no. <laughs> there is no image insertion here. Um, so I've got to understand that I'm incredibly stubborn. And so I was like, well, fine, I'll find a way. And I would just put white space in the script wherever I wanted to insert a, a, a symbol, a logogram. I made six of them. And there were six different places in the script. So whenever I converted that to PDF, then I would manually place it in the PDF before I sent it out. I did that a hundred times. I'm an idiot. I mean, it was just horrible extra work for me. But it allowed you to learn the language, though. It helped. Yeah, it it helped. helped. I mean, that, like, like Patrice Vermette is the designer that took it and ran with it and did amazing work from there. But it always remained circular and it always had a sense of like different pieces piggybacking on each other. Well, that's actually an important part about the script-to-screen process because uh, I had one screen professor told me a screenplay is an engineering schematic. And people like the production designer need to know what you're thinking. Sure. And that must have been a great help. You know, the production is like, oh, I get it. Now I can run with the ball. Yeah, you know. exactly. So, all right. Uh, now, obviously, the culmination of the big pivotal moment is the offer weapon. Uh-huh. Misunderstand. Uh, did you always know? Did you, let, did you always know you wanted this moment? Is this, did you know this would be the turning point? Or did you kind of, like, I need something in the middle, like something towards Act 3? Oh, I got to say that, like, I, maybe this is just the process of writing, but, like, every scene you're like, now this is this moment. This is it. And then yeah. you're like, no, that's not the moment anymore. This is the moment. And you have to do that in order to, like, kind of get invested each, 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 each beat. So I didn't know how big it would be, but um, I'm, I'm glad it feels that way. <laughs> it was, uh, and, of course, with the military attention heating up, I love the story. You go back to the daughter. Mm-hmm. Mommy and Daddy saved the, uh, the world, which was really the first hint. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. How did you juggle that? Because you didn't want to totally reveal that at this point that, uh, you know, uh, right. Louise, this is, she, hasn't met her, you know, she hasn't met her daughter yet. This is, right. what, was that, what was that point? Were you worried about that? How do I fit that all in or give away too much? Or well, I wanted to make sure that, like, at no time were we building a movie that had like a big Kaiser Soze reveal. We didn't want to be like holding our cards back the whole time. So it's all right to show something that might be a little confusing, but some viewers could be like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's going on here? And, and you, can, you can plug into that at, at any number of places in the film. And in fact, we, I'd, I've been with people who have seen it the first time, and they don't hear when Louise asks, who is this child? When she's there with Costello, um, and it hits them toward the end, and, and I the, like at Fantastic Fest, and when she said non-zero sum game, when she went back and told her daughter that, there were people gasping like, oh, you know, like there was like it was because they're nerds, you know, it's like Austin. <laughs> Curious, as a round of applause, how many people missed that line? 
uh, who is that girl? All right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to hear sometimes. It was brilliant. It was subtle, though. That's what is sure. so important. Uh, now, obviously, a lot of sci-fi films, when the alien dies, people cheer. The alien's bad. Independence Bay, you know, sure. explosions. Did you always know you always would know you were going to kill one of them off? And, yes. And, and, you, so you, and how did you structure that moment? How do you want to like, get the most dramatic impact for it? Um, it, that's one that the, the more that you linger on it, the, 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 I guess the more bittersweet it becomes because, um, you know, if heptopods, the way that the language works and the way that we see it affect Louise, she is able to see her own life, but she can't see time objectively, you know, beyond her, the, her years, she can't see the future, like, you know, a long time from now, which lets you know that the lifespan of a heptapod is at least 3,000 years if they know what's going to happen then. And that means that if Abbott knows he has to sacrifice himself to make sure that Louise gets this gift, he is sacrificing millennia of his own life in order to ensure that his race is safe. Yeah, that actually really impacted me because, uh, because obviously I didn't get a chance to feel that the first time, mm-hmm. but the second time I realized that he knew he was going to die. Yeah. He knew that, and he, and he knew he had a saver too. Like yeah. it, it was everything was fall, um, and of course, oh, ooh, you killed my question about non-zero sum game. <laughs> oh man, that was that was a great moment too. Because again, you, you you brilliant setup. Oh, he doesn't know who the daughter is. Oh, oh, wait a minute. So that's a uh, um, now obviously you have the film that's semi-nonlinear. Did you write out the storyline in your mind, or you know maybe put it on draft like her storyline from past to present? Uh, because I did this on spec, I had the luxury of being able to do all sorts of experimental drafts. Um, I can tell you that I started writing just the mother-daughter scenes, and I and I did a lot of transposition from the short story because there are some lovely scenes with mom and daughter in the short story, and then I made up a few of my own, and then it got into, and I just had those kind of banked. And then when I started writing out the the rest of the, like the present day narrative, it was a matter of like finding out where I could insert those, what's the context for those, and how do I transition to and from them properly? Because um, you know transitions are are a big deal. And you did need it because there were times where it was getting too tense. Yeah. You know, the storyline was getting tense. You know, the, the world was on the brink of war and stuff like that. So and of course, the, the pitiful scene with General Chang. I mean, gen- the, the Chinese general. Yes. Uh, did you always know that? That was your moment at the end? The moment uh, you needed? No, that, that came up later. I mean, there was a, a long while where um, our, the gift that the heptopods were giving it were um, different pieces of technology to make a ship so that we could, like, venture off and explore the stars on our own. And then, um, and then Interstellar came out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Denis calls me, Eric, we're in trouble. <laughs> we need something else, and um, and he and he, he he expressed that he was a little worried about it being a ship anyway because he doesn't want anybody to mistakenly get the message of like, hey humanity, you screwed up your planet really badly. Here's the blueprints to go screw up another planet. You know, <laughs> like he didn't want that. So um, so much of this language itself felt like a, a gift in its own right. So we embraced that, um, and that then altered the ending a little bit. You know, and so the general Shang became more of a um, more of a player in it. Oddly enough, though, it was never to be... We, the Chinese market was never consideration. I was told early on, uh-huh. forget about this because they, they refuse a film that deals with time travel. So we're never going to get in there anyway. Um, so it was just really about being true to the fact that it's one of those superpowers out there that would definitely have uh, an effect on other, other, other countries. 
Uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Jeremy Renner, Ian. Okay. Uh, so for you, did he do anything that's helped do anything surprise you in his, his portrayal, or did you know something you didn't maybe envision originally? That, I didn't realize how smart he is. That man is really intimidatingly smart. <laughs> like he does his homework. Like he he sat down. He's like, so Eric, firm at principle, at least time. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. You know, so we talked about Snell's law and Bayes' theorem, and yeah, uh, yeah, he got into it. Let's see. Oh, one of the one of the most interesting things about the movie was the music. Uh huh. So, what what was that process working? How surprised were you? Because that was you know you, obviously as a writer you can't really always envision the music. Well, I get to understand. Johan Johansson is just a crazy Icelandic bastard. Like he is amazing, <laughs> um, and the way that he and Denis work is kind of like how like. Um, you know, I've done one film of my own, and I brought in uh, Ben Walfish to do the, the score for that, and I brought him very early. And thankfully, Denis is the same way, where Johan was doing pieces and score and sending it to us uh, before we started filming. Oh, that's nice. So it's like, completely different from, like, usually the picture's locked, and you get, like, a two-week relationship with the, with the guy who comes in and, and does the score. Um, but here, he's just like, I, you know, I have more ideas, and you know, what about this, Denis? And... and um, and he's, oh, like so many plays, there is a track somewhere on this score that's an audio palindrome. You play it backwards and it's the same tune. <laughs> um, there's other stuff where he, he went and an analog recorded a piano and he got rid of all the attack and just let the decay. Uh, and then he, and he integrated that into a, a bunch of other elements in order to create um, a very unique sound so that you couldn't differentiate between his score and sound design around the heptapods. It's, wow. it's crazy. Yeah, and a little about the sound mixing, because I found the sound, you know, typically sci-fi movies, big, big explosions, big explosions. I was, I was fascinated by the silence in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like even with Amy, especially when the bomb goes off. Right. You know, because you, you, you know it's almost like the anticipation of the explosion sure. is more painful. Yeah. Uh, and even the firefight is off camera. Right, and only like a little in the background. Yeah. So that was, was, you, was that something, again, one of the parts of the screen, the sound guy going in a direction that I surprised me because I would expect it a more big sound, actually. Well, I think we all knew that like, that's not this movie. And it's oddly enough that like, when, we first, when I first got the rights to this story with the story with the producers, we went and we tried to pitch it around town first and sell it at a studio. And it was odd hearing rejections from studios and all the reasons why they rejected it were reasons that just sort of reaffirmed why we wanted to make it. Like, one of them was like, well, you need, you need a human to punch an alien in the face at the end of this for us to make this a film. And we are like, okay, we can't do that for sure. That's an absolute, you know. And, and another one dealt with like, well, where's the, where's the firefight? Where's, the, where's all of that? And we're like, okay, that's not at all what this, what this story is trying to tell. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I'd be curious to see the sound, you know, with the Oscars coming up, they get recognized, because I thought it was brilliant sound. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, Great job. So, obviously, the movie has taken on a life, you know. Uh, how has this award season process been? Sharing, you know, time with all your co- collaborators who are getting a lot of recognition. It's yeah. to pour in. What has been the process for you? It went to festivals first, if I'm it not did. mistaken? Yeah, it did the festival circuit, and that was great. And then, um, and then it's gotten some life on, on its own since then. Uh, it's just fun being able to get back together with them, you know. It's, a, it's like a, a, a close group of friends that um, now gets a chance to see each other on a regular basis. Like, I don't think I'd get a chance to see a lot of them otherwise. But, um, 
I'm a hugger, so there's a lot of hugging going on. <laughs> Unless you do a sequel. Or a prequel. <laughs> yeah, we'll do or one. Both at the we'll same do time. one set. Yeah, exactly. We'll do it 3,000 years from now. So, uh, all right, so I'm going to open up to the audience to let you guys get a shot of talking. I have mics that are coming out to the intern, so please raise your hand. Um, you said that you were surrounded. First of all, I want to congratulate you uh, with your other movie, Lights Out. Oh, yeah, thank you. That was phenomenal. Um, uh, you said that you were surrounded by scholars early in your life, and you quoted Tennyson. I was wondering how many properties of uh, poems influenced you in the uh, film, because uh, her last words, according to my Chinese friends, were, was a Mandarin poem. Um, it was, I, I kind of, I went, I, I brutalized that poem a bit. Okay. I gotta say. Yeah. And <laughs> what, 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 were, what were her last dying words? That's, uh, there's a story to that. Um, and if you haven't heard this one before. Um, and uh, it was that I had, uh, as a screenwriter, I had left myself a little time bomb. I was just, I was, in the script I said, you know, Louise says something in Mandarin to the general. I'm like, oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> and then cut to, you know, three months before shooting. And then he calls me like, Eric, Eric, what is this line? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. He's like, no, 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 no. We have the Mandarin translator here who has to teach Amy Adams what to, this is, this line saves the earth, Eric. Do you understand? <laughs> this is the most important dialogue in the whole film. And I'm like, ah! You know, I started sweating out hard. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And I started like coming up with options of what the, what the dying wife's last words were to, uh, to Shang. And submitting them to Dini. And Dini just, this is the way he works. You find out early on, anyone creative, he does it with Amy or, uh, or me or Bradford or you know, anything where he'll, all in one breath, he'll be like, you know, Eric, you're a lovely human being. I admire you. This is a travesty and embarrassment. You know, just like, <laughs> uh, you know, and, that's, and you go with that. And then you're like, okay, I'll, I'll get better. And then you, you get to a point where you submit something and he goes, okay, 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 okay. And that's his way of saying mediocre. <laughs> which is what you have been plenty of times I have seen dailies of where Amy Adams hears that and she's like no okay okay we're going to do another take I don't want that and we're not going to end on that and, and that's what he does he inspires you to try to keep you know going and I guess it was about two dozen lines later that I found a poem and I, and I did some alliteration so that I made it sound I guess more poetic I don't know <laughs> in, my, in my mind but I'm like oh, this is pretty good and I send it to him and he says Eric, I, I deeply love this. I deeply love this. This is you have found it for me. And I'm like, wow, great. He's like, this is the best line. I'm like, okay, that's a little too much, but all right. <laughs> um, and then I finally get like, you know, you see, I've seen cuts during development, but during that time, like a lot of the sound and plenty of subtitles for Costello and other stuff never never shows up. And so I'm there seeing it finally put together for the first time at Toronto uh, at the film fest. Ted Chang right next to me, and we get to that scene. And the bastard Denis doesn't use subtitles for any of that. Like he's just like <laughs> throw that away. And I'm like, no. Nah! <laughs> so, uh, so, but what what the dying wife's last words were? Um, In war, there are no winners, only widows. So there, that's a long way to get there. I don't, I don't even know what the question was at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, more questions. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, my name is Julia McLennan. I'm a graduate student here. And uh, one of my research questions is on temporality and how our conceptions of time shape how we live. So I really right, appreciated your movie. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say I appreciated it for that reason. But my question is actually about um, your relationship with Ted 
Chang, Ted, Ted Chiang, uh -huh. um, and just wondering how, how much you worked with him, um, because it seems like one of the strengths of his stories is this kind of imaginative spirit. Um, he leaves a lot unsaid, a lot for you to think about and yeah. fill in the details. And I thought you, you filled in a lot of details, but you kept that original imaginative spirit for the audience as well. So um, I really appreciate that, but also I'm curious about that, relation, that working relationship with him. Um, well, I gotta say that uh, you know, when we first got the rights to the story, it was a shopping agreement, and that's something the producers did for me. Um, and then when, when none of the studios bought it, um, I, I said to myself, I can't, I can't walk away, I have to write this on spec. Um, I, I just want to get this film because it's in my bones. Uh, and that required a longer formal extension of the rights, uh, and Ted wouldn't release them until he heard what the pitch was. Uh, and I pitched to 100 different execs, uh, all different levels. I was never more nervous than pitching to Ted himself, you know, because it was a little bit like saying, so I'm going to borrow your car, I'm going to do some aftermarket work and then bring it back to you, and you may not like it, I don't know. So it was, it was, a, weird, it was a weird situation. Um, but afterward he said, all right, I like this. I think this is a, a, a smart approach to it. Um, you have a year, and I started writing that night. Um, but I got his email, and whenever I felt like I had a draft that was worthy of his eyeballs, I would, I would send to him. And he, beca he got to be my science police at the start because he did a lot of that research. Or if I, if I got stuck on some linguistics thing, and I'm like, Ted, I don't think I can use unsegmented graphemes in, in dialogue. I don't think that's really going to... Can, what, what, can we say something else here? You know? um, he's very helpful for all of that. Uh, and, I, and at the end of it, he was the one who was the more fervent defender of the script than anything. Like, he was the one where, I remember after seeing the premiere in Toronto, he leaned over and says, what happened to this line? I'm like, Ted, you know, this is <laughs> editorial, it happens, it's, you know, it's all right. Like, I don't know if they're going to get it. I think they're going to get it. It's going to be all right. Uh, and I love him for that, you know. He really, he really leaned into it. And uh, he and I are, you know, we're still friends from it. Thank God. Like, I would, I would be, you know, like, oh, yeah, we, we had a terrible falling out. That would be terrible. Yeah, it seems a little rare in Hollywood to have the short story novelist, the screenwriter, and the director all yeah. in sync. But let me tell you, like, during this process, like, like, I was great with Denis, and I knew that we were building the right thing, and we were getting the right talent attached to it, uh, and I had a, a really high level of confidence. But meanwhile, in Ted's world... He was going to, to various book tours and sci-fi conventions where he was surrounded by sci-fi authors who've always had the worst experience in Hollywood. And they were all like, Ted, they're going to just totally destroy it. And then you're going to be left like, you know, penniless in a gutter. And you're like, you know, and, I, you know, and he would call me at like two in the morning like, hey, Eric, is this going to go? I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. We're doing all right. Okay, so we have questions. Oh, we have one right here. I, I'm always very interested in children in film. And I was uh, interested in thinking, wondering more about why the script got changed from the book where uh, the daughter is a 25-year-old who perhaps dies of her own impetuous nature right. uh, versus a young, you know, very adorable little girl who, you know, has this terminal illness. Right. So, so what kind of writing decisions went into that? Um, I, 
One is a writing decision and one is a production decision. Um, and for the production decision, if we had um, a girl who lived to be 25 uh, before she made a mistake and passed away, then you definitely have to age up your lead actress and that blows everything. Um, the, the other is, in Ted's story, um, time is it's, it's deterministic, you know, and Louise at the end is, her lesson is more about embracing the inevitable. She has no choice but to have the child. She knows it's gonna, she's going to die in 25 years, um, and she's just accepting that, accepting her fate. Um, and I found in development of the screenplay that um, it, may, it may be deterministic, but we are unaware of that that we still feel like we have choice. And to be able to give Amy Adams the power of like, maybe I can choose not to have her, but I choose to, it becomes far more emotionally profound uh, as sort of like a, uh, as an emotional experience. You also might have to explain how she, why she died. You know, yeah, like how she killed herself, which might have complicated the whole plot too. It would, it really yeah. would have. And and uh, it was the first stickler that anytime we explain the short story to someone else, she's like, "Wait, a, a, a mountain climbing accident? Did, could she just say stay home that day?" Like, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of that. I love that people have read the story here. By the way, that's just it makes my heart sing. You know, because this is the biggest promotion for Ted's work that I could come up with. <laughs> Hi, a beautiful movie, by the way. Uh, just like to ask, um, as a screenwriter, how do you weave all these um, philosophical questions and still maintain like a, a thread throughout the entire process so that the audience understands what you're trying to say? Because you, you're talking about how an alien arrives and what that would do to humanity. You would talk about determinism and acting, and despite knowing what will happen, you still, that, that, those, like those, those philosophical questions I'm asking, how do you, as a screenwriter, how do you weave that thread so that people still understand what you're trying to say at the end of it, if that makes sense? Um, for me, I, I, I don't know how other writers approach that. For me, it's just a whole lot of rewriting. You know, it's a lot of trial and error, um, and it's and it's having to be open to research and development on that front. You know, there have been plenty of scenes, especially when it comes down to some of the more heady or intellectual concepts here in the film. Um, I had to arrive at uh, the most palatable way for audiences to understand that without sacrificing the intelligence of the characters that are that are saying it. Um, you know, I can tell you that sometimes uh, your best ideas come out of note sessions with producers where the producers are saying there's something, you know, not quite right here. We get what you're after, but it's not there yet. Um, and you've got to listen to that. Um, in fact, a, a good example is in an, my first draft of the script, is there was a two-page segment of Louise teaching very basic vocabulary to the heptopods. It was just, you know, scene after scene of Ian demonstrating, like, you know, sort of kindergarten grade words. And, you know, the producers sat down, they're like, we've got to get to this, Eric. I've got to tell you, 
these are the two of the least sexy script pages I've ever read. <laughs> it is ridiculously boring. I have no idea what is, what is it doing here. And I said, well, you have to start with the basics in order to get anywhere else. This is the whole point of the, it's like, I, they're like, no, I don't, I don't see that. And I got up on, a, on their whiteboard in their office and I wrote, what is your purpose on earth? And I began diagramming the sentence saying, this is why you have to do this. And they just stared at me for a while and they said, that's the scene. That's the scene, Eric. And they were right. Um, uh, but that's why you, know, you find the right people that are trying to make the same movie as you. You're in a good spot. All right, we have time for one or two more. So let's, uh, oh, I see a hand right there. Uh, like all the uh, like space, spaceship and the alien creatures in the movie are realized by computer uh, through the visual effects. And I, I just wondering uh, how are they uh, different from your imagination? Like, were they disappointed you or were they uh, beyond your expectation? Um, they were they were quite surprising to me. Like the the work, the visual effects work, they they did some remarkable stuff. And I think you don't know how incredibly hard it is to build a brand new uh, non humanoid alien design until you're tasked with it, and you discover how many visual effects artists out there just run to Giger uh, uh, when they and they have nothing else, you know and uh, uh, and it took a very long time for us to get some design that we were interested in. We had used for a good while a version of the aliens as they were described in the short story, which is that they were, they were rather cylindrical and um, they didn't necessarily have eyes. And they had their seven limbs, the heptapods, they all sort of kind of ran out of their central uh, mass as spokes in a wheel, you know, uh, so they were equidistant. Um, and that felt completely alien to us. That felt like we hadn't seen it before. And the VisiFix guys were like, yeah, but the moment we try and move one of these things, it'll just scream cartoon CG because nothing organic in life can be compared. Like, we need something. Our brains need something based on real life that, that moves like a creature that we think it would move, even if the rest of it has a very alien feel. Um, and so they said, please show us something in nature that behaves or moves the way we would. And then we can base all of our, our visual effects work on that. And that's when Denis and I then spent um, our time combing through video of deep sea life that had just been discovered like in the last five years that looked very alien in its own right. And something that Nina and I liked about that as well is that when you got more, I don't want to say squid-like, but very much, you know, cephalopod, um, it had, to both of us, a very H.P. Lovecraft connotation that scared us. And we liked that because that's, that's not what the aliens are there for. Uh, but it, but it, it's us trying to override our natural instinct of, like, kill it with fire, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, uh, we always end our show with the same question. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, it's a, it's a tough one. Uh, can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had maybe as a child going with the family, a movie that really impacted you, something you, ha- you remember fondly? Growing up, that might have inspired you as a writer today. Um, well, this seems apropos, uh, but I became, I became obsessed with Close Encounters. Uh, I, was, I was crazy about that film, and it just didn't do what other films did for me during the time. It didn't feel like it adhered to the same kind of like storyline or uh, re- dramatic reveals that other films did. 
Um, I was not the kid that kept going to see, you know, Empire Strikes Back over and over again. I would go to see Richard Dreyfuss make mountains out of mashed potatoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and bless my parents you know, my, and their academic brains for embracing that. Uh, but, yeah. So there'll be no arrival for you without Close Encounters? There wouldn't, exactly. Uh, well, it's because the science fiction, you know, I think it gets a little lost today. Mm -hmm. They get lost in the special effects, this, the grandeur. And they, this, to me, uh, classic films like classic Close Encounters, Planet of the Apes, goes back to the core of science fiction, talking about social themes. Right. And I really appreciate Arrival. It's amazing work. It goes, to me, reminds me of those type of movies where it has something to say about society, working together, working with other nations, mm -hmm. but also feeling for characters, right. feeling for story. So I've got to say, I, I'm really appreciative you made this movie. Thank you. You wrote it. I appreciate that you brought it to us and were able to share it with us today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.